This is Penumbra Cast, The Other Scene. I'm Fernanda Negrete. In this interview, Lucie Quentin will speak with me about castration, explaining how the concept has been specifically developed in Quebec by Gifric and the Freudian School of Quebec. Lucie Quentin is a psychoanalyst in Quebec City. She works as a psychoanalyst at the 388, the Center for the Psychoanalytic Treatment of Young Psychotic Adults. She is also a supervising analyst, vice president of Gifric, and head of the Orientation Council at the Freudian School of Quebec. At Gifric, she leads a control seminar for the training of analysts and conducts a seminar on psychoanalysis and clinical psychology. At Laval University, she serves as a supervisor for the doctoral program in psychology. At Ghent University, She serves as supervisor for the master's program in psychology. Lucie Quintin is also the editor of Savoir, a journal of psychoanalysis and cultural analysis. She has published on the psychoanalytic treatment of psychosis, on the clinic of neurosis, on mysticism, femininity, masculinity, and perversion. She is currently overseeing an edited volume on the metapsychology of Willie Apple. This interview with Lucie Quentin on castration was originally recorded in French. Tracy McNulty is reading the English translation of Lucie Quentin's words. Hello, Lucie Quentin. Thank you so much for coming. I'm thrilled to speak with you today. It's a pleasure to be here. So for this episode, I propose to you that we speak about the concept of castration, about the way you think about this term and use it in your own practice, and about its use in the Freudian School of Quebec. It seems to me that compared to other interpretations of this term that Freud introduced at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th, the way you use it implies different and even surprising stakes. But I wanted to go beyond an analytic space in which analysis is familiar and to Think about how the word castration might have a completely different resonance to people who aren't familiar with it. You know, it could suggest something very violent and even dreadful. I'm thinking about the point of view of my university students, especially women, who might say that castration is based on the male body, that it's sexist, that it's outdated. So is there another way to understand or hear this word so we can discover its current importance? That's an excellent question because, indeed, I think it's important to get out of the popular view of castration, an almost folkloric view. I would really go back to the meaning of this word, the primary meaning of, of which is loss. So a castration, a loss. And the important question then becomes the loss of what? What is this loss about? We must get out of the popular view and into the field of psychoanalysis as we practice it here at the Freudian School of Quebec in Gifric. This kind of psychoanalysis has been transformed to consider the global period in which we currently live, where cultures and civilizations have been confronted by a fall of their own ideals and cultural models, as well as the collapse of the beliefs and morals holding up these ideals. And this context of psychoanalysis the one in which we live today, is not the one in which psychoanalysis was born. It's completely different now. That's the first thing I'd have to say. The second is about this renewed psychoanalysis, which is based on something Willie Apollon developed, a new metapsychology. It leaves behind the domain of neurosis in which Freud first developed psychoanalysis. So it's a psychoanalysis that was renewed in contact with the clinic of psychosis and perversion. And these two dimensions, mondialisation, Uh, which could be translated as a cultural globalization, and the clinic of psychosis and perversion 
prompted psychoanalysis to focus even more on the human, considering how every human being might be interested in the developments of psychoanalysis beyond the culture and civilization in which they live, and also beyond their psychic structures, meaning beyond the fact of being neurotic, psychotic, or perverse. So I'll approach the question of castration by thinking about the human being in this way, thereby defining three types of castration, real castration, imaginary castration, and symbolic castration. So real castration, it's the product or the result of what we call the effraction of the psyche by the mind. Okay, so what does this mean? What does that mean? It's the loss of a human function that is ruled by instinct, by the survival of the species, by the adaptation to the environment and the ecosystem. So it's the loss of an animal functioning. This functioning, this logic that regulates how the animal functions, is lost, overtaken by something that invades and redirects it. So I would say that this kind of loss has to do with something else outside of this animal functioning that enters the psyche. As I said, it's what Willie Apollon calls the effraction of the psyche, the psychic apparatus, by the mind. The mind, meaning a human's ability to represent things that don't exist in reality and to invest in them to the point of wanting to have them, to create them. And this drive in us, this capacity of wanting to go beyond reality, produces a quest in us whose passage we will want to privilege above everything else. And this is for the best and for the worst. So this real castration that gives humans a life of the mind and exiles them from this instinctive animal logic, this capability is what institutes the human. So real castration is something positive. This ability is what makes us human. Not only that, it also makes each one of us unique. Animals of the same species, for example, will all function the same way. But for us, this power, this life of the mind, not only institutes what is human, it also institutes the singularity of each one of us, which is to say that what breaks into our psyches depends on what each of us has lived, experienced, imagined, represented mentally, or fantasized. So that's just it. These productions of the mind have produced in each one of us particular sensibilities, a singular eroticization of the body, and they have mobilized an energy in search of something and determined by these mental representations, which motivate, without our realizing it, decisions, the choices we make in our lives, the acts we carry out, and even the symptoms we might have. In short, this life of the mind has opened up in the human psyche a new space in which an unconscious quest originates, driving us to always go further than reality, to want things that are well beyond the logic of life, reason, well beyond the pleasure principle. It's also the very origin of desire, which makes us go beyond what is already there. It is not the psyche that creates, in other words. It's the mind within us, the human mind that creates, and a quest that is without limits, that goes well beyond the limits of pleasure. So that means that the psyche is a limit, and the mind breaks this limit. It means that the psyche's purpose is to, for example, the knowledge of the instinct, what allows us to adapt, what allows an individual to adapt to an environment, what allows an animal to adapt to an environment, to an ecosystem, to changes. That stays in a logic that is the logic of life, the logic of a return to equilibrium, for example, the logic of the upholding of an equilibrium in a logic of life not only in the life of the individual, but in the survival of the species. Meanwhile, the human does things that lead them to want things that might destroy them, for example, to want things that break the limits of pleasure. Pleasure wants us to eat just until we're satisfied and then stop. 
all of this animalistic logic is disrupted, hijacked, perverted in the true sense of the word, meaning redirected from its original goal, redirected from its objects to find something else. And this is what leads the human, what makes it act against the logic of the organism. The example of anorexia is really interesting in that sense. But you talked about other castrations too. Yes. So I was saying that real castration is what institutes the human. And in this sense, it's something positive. Imaginary castration, before coming to the question of imaginary castration, I must talk about as a premise what Lacan called the mirror stage. This is when the baby, way before beginning to speak, identifies with the image the mirror gives back to them, this image at which the mother smiles. This is a moment that really marks the division of the subject. This means that the intimate experience of the baby from its conception, even from before its birth, up to the moment of the mirror stage, which Lacan situates between six and 18 months, everything the baby lives in its body without being able to speak or move or avoid a danger or something they experience from the inside, all of this experience is absent from the image in the mirror, absent from the image that the other invests. And this identification with an image the other produces marks the path to what becomes, in childhood, the search for what one must be to please the other, to be accepted by the other. So as soon as the child enters into language, language is what structures and organizes social relationships, as soon as they start interacting with others, for example, in preschool, the child is confronted by rules, ideals, and restrictions that organize their relationships with others, that structure their way of being in the social sphere. But the child doesn't know that culture influences these ideals about how to be in the social sphere. The child doesn't know that. The child is faced with the demands of the other that define what they should be, what they should or shouldn't do, who they shouldn't be to be accepted, to be loved, to be acknowledged, not to be abandoned, and so forth. Not to be abandoned by the other, to be recognized by the other, whether the other is the parent, teacher, playmate, or friend. So in imaginary castration, or the experience of loss that occurs in childhood, the child must resist their own drives, their own desires, their own motivations to act for the sake of not being rejected, for the sake of being loved, accepted, recognized, and so forth. In other words, this kind of castration or loss, imaginary castration, is a deflection of the subject from what constitutes their subjectivity. It's like what we were saying earlier, what inscribes itself in them, what makes them who they are as a subject. The drive, the energy of the drive is redirected from its original quest in order to respond to the other's demands, to try to satisfy the other at the risk of entrapping the child in a cycle in which they have only symptoms to express themselves as a subject. For example, bulimia or anorexia, although that doesn't occur until later in life. Yes, for example but also a type of agitation. Like for example, what today we call attention deficit disorder. Any agitation essentially that the child exhibits. It isn't normal when a child has symptoms. A child's symptoms indicate that there is something inside of them that can't find another way to express itself. It backfires on the child, expressing itself through erratic behavior or symptoms displayed in the body. So this moment of the drive being redirected to please the other's demands is also the moment where what we call the seduction fantasy begins. This is when the individual remains captive, imprisoned in what they imagine they must be or what they must do to satisfy the other. And here we see many adults who are no more than children who thus remain in this seduction fantasy, 
meaning always trapped in this effort to satisfy the other, whether that other is the parent, the spouse, the boss, the colleague, ensuring that as long as they satisfy the other, as long as they are good, recognized, high-performing, they have a positive image of themselves. People call that self-esteem. And in this way, the individual's social success depends on how they satisfy the other. Therefore, the expectation of the other's acknowledgement takes over and monopolizes the energy of the drive. We see here that this is really a deflection, a turn away from the space of the quest of desire. Because here, rather than working toward creating something from what constitutes our subjectivity, the energy of the drive works towards satisfying and responding to the expectations and the demands of the other. This is what I'm calling imaginary castration. So this kind of loss is called imaginary because it's imaginary that it's the other who castrates, who prevents one from being happy, or inversely, who makes one happy. It's attributed to the other. Thus, we will see that this kind of castration is something that we want to traverse. And then there's symbolic castration. When the subject hits puberty, they are confronted in a more direct way with symbolic castration, meaning a castration that is imposed by what culture and civilization demand in the name of collective life life and society. So here, it's a loss that culture imposes. In imaginary castration, what we just talked about is the individual themselves who suppresses something in order to please the other, to respond to the expectations of the other. But with this type of castration, symbolic castration, culture is the one that imposes something for the sake of the individual's life within society and the collective. This type of castration happens in two ways. First, by what we call the censoring of the feminine. The feminine meaning that part of us that transcends culture and civilization, that's not a part of culture or language, that remains outside of language, outside of meaning, and that searches for a way to express itself. This dimension of every human being that Willy Apollon identifies as the feminine is what culture suppresses in the name of social regulation, because this desire in us can and will create things. It's in search of something that laws and restrictions by the other cannot regulate, something that eventually becomes subversive to the established order. I mean, we can imagine that if every human individual adapted exactly to the collective ideals of culture and civilization, culture would no longer be possible. So culture and civilization try to censor the feminine, this outside of meaning. By the way, and we might return to this point later, it's not for nothing that we call it the feminine culturally. Yeah, we should return to this question. Absolutely. So the second thing is, in order to accomplish the censoring of the feminine, culture produces something that Willy Apollon calls the cultural montage of sexuality, which is when culture constructs a definition of sexuality that reduces desire to its relationship to the other, thereby rendering the other the object, quote unquote, of desire. In order to do this, culture must define what sexuality is, what a man or a woman is. It defines the frame and the modalities in which sexual relationships can and must occur, thus defining the satisfaction of the individual. And so the censoring of the feminine occurs when culture redirects the desire of the subject into its own restrictive framework of values and norms. But this time, the deflection, the castration of desire happens on the basis of a deceptive object that's offered up to desire, as if the object of desire could be an other in reality rather than a quest inside of us that goes much further than this relation to the other in the frame of culture. We can think about transsexuality and non-binarity 
here. Are these also identities among others that culture proposes, even if these are options or choices that appear to be very liberating? Yes, exactly. And you're absolutely right to say that culture proposes these identities today. At this point, they've entered into language. And so they've become acceptable and admissible sexual identities in our current culture. So once again, we are within a cultural frame. And we know this because the ego is constructed from these identities, from identification with these models that change not only from one culture to another, but from one period to another. Through identification with cultural models within a cultural frame, the ego is constructed. But psychoanalysis is not interested in the ego. Psychoanalysis is interested in the subject, the subject of the unconscious, and thus in each subject's relation to jouissance, to sexual desire, and to the unconscious quest in each one of us that takes us beyond what culture proposes. This is an extremely important point. Psychoanalysis is not interested in the ego. Yes, it's definitely important to emphasize this. I was just wondering about analytic treatment with regards to its interest in the subject. So Freud talked about the obstacles to the end of such a treatment in 1937, towards the end of his life. And one of his last texts, Psychoanalysis Terminable and Interminable, speaks about the rock of castration or the bedrock of castration as that which prevents the ending of treatment. And he takes up this question of man and woman and what castration means for the one and for the other. And he says, for example, that for a woman, there is a reemergence of feminine protestation or of penis envy, and that this is when analysis becomes interminable for her. So I was wondering um, how we could situate that with regards to these three different kinds of castration. So when Freud says these kinds of things, it's important that he's speaking from within a cultural framework. Because once again, when we talk about man, woman, and what Freud explains here with regards to what is imposed upon the woman, what is imposed upon the man, we're inside this framework. We're really within the construction of what culture demands of us and makes us lose. Meanwhile, what we're saying is precisely that analysis must aim to emancipate the subject from this imaginary castration while precipitating the fall of the other who must be satisfied. It tries to go beyond the limits imposed by culture and civilization with what we call the traversal of symbolic castration. It's only through traversing, it's only through the fall of the imaginary other the other of the demand, the other constructed in childhood, which the drive works to satisfy. It's only through traversing or collapsing this other, and so traversing the limits culture and civilization impose on desire in collapsing these limits, that we leave the framework of culture and leave man or woman. We will see later that as of now, there are things culture imposes upon girls that it doesn't impose upon boys and vice versa. These things still exist in today's culture and civilization, not just in the West, but in civilizations everywhere. But yes, the psychoanalysis we practice aims precisely to go beyond these demands that culture and civilization impose on a man or a woman, focusing on the human subject that exists beyond these sexual identifications that culture produces. Yeah, that really seems to suggest the possibility of living in another way in relation to desire. So this going beyond is about liberating the energy of desire. Yes, that's exactly right. Because as soon as there are cultural limits imposed by the need to satisfy the other, essentially with regards to seduction, the energy of the drive is captured and the search for desire has no other path but the symptom or the act. So this is why Freud talks about an analysis being interminable. He is thinking about how no matter how well the boy or the girl execute what culture wants them to do, that will never resolve the symptom because what's at work in the symptom needs a path of expression 
that is beyond what culture offers. So Freud realizes at the same time that even if the analyst gives meaning to the symptom, but continues to work within culture's demands, making sure the individual conforms to what culture wants of them, the symptom will stay, or maybe it will disappear, but another one will reappear, because that's what's at work in the subject needs to find a way to express itself. This desire must find a path of expression. Right. Yeah. So it seems I see this everywhere in everyday life. And I think sometimes it's difficult for some people to realize that the energy of desire is a prisoner inside of the cultural montage or construction of sexuality, and that we could even live beyond the cultural montage would be livable. Yes, but at the same time, I think that this creative quest inside each person, which culture or civilization is unable to reduce and that always makes us go further and want the impossible, like Jacques Brel says in his song, to go where no one goes, to want to go where no one goes. This quest, this push, as soon as it's liberated by the analysis, this traversal of these castrations leads us to an unavoidable question, and that is, how then will the subject articulate the limitless quest of its desire? What kind of guidelines will the subject give itself for this quest? Yes, there's a completely different way to think about the end of an analysis or about castration and its consequences with regard to other ways of speaking about this, even among Lacanians. So I often notice that people can easily accept and consent to the end of an analysis, but it's as if they have trouble believing in the quest of desire in this non-limit Yes, and perhaps even trouble believing that they can be true to that desire. I think it's important to distinguish Lacan's position, but also when we hear from certain Lacanians, we tend to think that desire remains in a space where it is in relation to the other, where an other in reality could be the object of this desire. Therefore, the question of traversing castration as we consider it inevitably runs up against the question of ethics and aesthetics. Ethics, because what is the subject going to do with this freedom with no limit, with this limitless freedom to create? How will the subject articulate this quest in the human collective, not in culture, but in the human collectivity? Yeah, that's the difference. And that's what castration, this concept of real castration in the sense of an infraction of the psyche by the mind, changes something. Castration is not simply resignation or adaptation. Lacan never wanted adaptation to be the result of the analysis. But yeah, it's important to think beyond culture and civilization and to find something else, ethics. Yes, how is this creative quest going to bring something to the human? Yeah, and how this object also is never here, nor already, neither already here, nor to be found somewhere in the world. Okay, yeah, so it's interesting to think again a little bit more about the feminine and about women. After all, Freud started inventing psychoanalysis with women who wanted to be heard, and he listened to them. To get into this question, I'll definitely turn to the clinic, to the particular difficulties and pitfalls we come across in the clinic of women around how to exit the montage and traverse castration. Since you're alluding to Freud, who began psychoanalysis with women, I think it's important, especially for young people who read Freud now, not to forget the context. It's important not to forget the revolutionary dimension of what Freud inaugurated. So we should situate ourselves at the end of the 19th century and beginning of the 20th century, when Freud sees these women locked up at the Salpetriere Hospital, whose bodies were ravaged by something, because they didn't have any other way to express themselves, 
rendering them crazy to the point of needing to be locked up and subjected to all sorts of more or less violent physical treatments. So seized by this thing known in previous periods as sorcery or the devil. It's revolutionary that Freud, facing these quote-unquote mad women, thinks that we have to give them a chance to speak and that we can treat them through speaking, even though, once again, they become the object of all sorts of physical treatment, of imprisonment, in fact, torture. My first remark would be that it's important not to forget that. My second remark concerns the fact that for centuries, this thing that in fact resides in every human and has been identified with with women's bodies as something that is lodged or embodied in women's bodies in particular, this thing, this free energy that escapes the control of all culture and civilizations is identified as being in the body of women. It's not for nothing that we've done this, Hence what I was saying earlier about the censoring of the feminine, the censoring of this thing that is in every human being, but that we've identified for centuries as something inhabiting women's bodies, something that is incarnated in women's bodies. Why? Well, it's no doubt because women, again, throughout all of history and across all civilizations, have been deemed as destined for motherhood and reproduction, a maternity that overtakes first their bodies and then a significant part of their lives through a social and cultural responsibility to nurture that this maternity imposes, or rather implies. So cultures have always idealized this function of maternity, defining a woman by maternity to such an extent that even now women often have a feeling somewhere inside of them that a woman isn't really accomplished unless she's also a mother. Of course, it's not necessarily stated in so many words, but it's something that is at work inside of many women. So since early childhood, the girl is insidiously conditioned into playing her cultural role, maternity, to be a mother. This, without a doubt, also explains the power and the weight of the seduction fantasy in girls when they work to make themselves a desirable object in order to be chosen. We can see that all of this has to do with culture and civilization's conception that in order to be a woman, a quote-unquote real woman, an accomplished woman, She must be both desirable and a mother. But this conception evidently ignores who she is as a subject, for her being a subject has nothing to do with her cultural function as a mother and as something held in relation to the other. So this mindset of culture that holds the woman captive from childhood onward culminates in puberty when a censoring that comes from culture really takes place in her. As soon as she starts to learn rules, the young girl experiences an abrupt termination of childhood. And we now know that this end can sometimes occur very, very early, at nine, 10 years old. This is a moment when culture takes possession of her body. The way we talk about her will never be the same again. The way culture speaks about her will never be the same again. The way she is looked at will never be the same again. From now on, there are things she will never be able to do again. She is now seen as a woman in the making. And I would say that what we at the clinic show is that it's not obvious that a woman, a young pubescent girl around 12 or 13 years of age, will be able or will even want to escape this trap. Because in a way, it's satisfying to construct yourself to become a woman in the eyes of culture and of society. So the clinic of women shows us that this dimension is very powerful. This capture of the girl in the sexual montage is extremely powerful the censoring of the feminine in her, who she is as a subject. It's so powerful, in fact, it's almost as if it manages to convince her that she really is nothing apart from her relation to the other. A patient once said to me, 
the, the very idea that there's something inside of me that doesn't depend on anyone else, it's almost unimaginable. Or she said that she sometimes feels that she's nothing or she can't do anything if she's alone. In the notes I sent you earlier, I gave the example of a documentary on Lady Gaga that was on Netflix. What struck me was when she said, when I think back to the men I've been with, you know, whether romantically or for business, I remember feeling like I wasn't worth anything. When I was on my own, I wasn't good enough. It's really tragic to think about this. In other words, it's as if culture has managed to completely suppress the ability to live according to a subjective desire without depending on a relation to the other, on a relation to a lover, just to stand on her own in this desire. Yes, it's extremely tragic. I was also thinking about what you were saying about the lure of culture in symbolic castration, where we chase after something that's not really the desire of the subject. It seems like that complicates things for a woman with regards to wanting to escape the trap. We don't have any way to do this during puberty, but seeing as there are many adults who are good children, as we had said earlier, in a certain sense, in their relation to the other, here we see many adult women who are still within this trap. Or maybe they weren't actually a good child. They were they were failing at this, but still trying to search for something or someone as adults. They believe that what they truly want is to be a good mother. To be a mother or a wife, that will make me happy, they would say. Or even with professional endeavors, for example, to succeed in my career or to become famous like Lady Gaga, things like that. Yes, but what I thought was so tragic in what Lady Gaga said is that she lives a life in which she can express something inside of her that's crazy, but also beautiful, that allows her to create. And yet, despite this, she still wonders whether or not it was really her who did all of that. That's what I find tragic. And as you say, it's as if they keep looking for some kind of love to be loved at all costs, even if it means accepting the unacceptable. And to be loved not just for their own sake, but in the eyes of society. That's also what's tragic. They can't be seen as a lone, single woman in society and culture. They must be seen with a partner, as a mother. In fact, that makes me think about women who are considered as witches, who were burned at the stake. Usually, they were unmarried or widowed. In other words, those considered uncontrollable because they weren't in a relation with the other. They weren't enslaved somewhere in a relation with the other. So all of that takes over the young girl's adolescence. The moment of adolescence is precisely when we discover that there's something inside of us that no limit can hold back, neither culture nor any system of beliefs. It's when we throw overboard everything we're made to believe, the ideas imposed upon us about the world, the values that are given to us. We throw all of, all of that overboard because we know there's a dimension inside of us that goes beyond all of that. It's essentially a period when we strive to undo the censoring of desire, when we break open these limits. What we desire is always something that doesn't yet exist, something that is beyond what is proposed to us by culture or civilization. We want to change the world. We want to create. We don't want to be restricted. And all of this baggage we just talked about regarding the girl comes and takes hold of this period of adolescence. And I would say that in treatment, the biggest challenge is how do you let go of the other? Whether it's the other the patient tried to satisfy in childhood, the other of seduction, the other of culture what culture imposed on a girl, for example, or even, you know, what might be called the, the placeholding other, the other that would come to take over and inhabit the place of the subject herself. And this is an extremely difficult moment for women in treatment. 
because this is the moment when, in fact, they must face this desire inside of them. And if they take the risk of this desire, which means confronting the solitude they might face or the consequences a change of position might have for their romantic relationships, their relationships with their spouses, their friends, and so forth, they have to take the risk of pursuing or creating something that they would be responsible for and the consequences this might have for their relationships with others and also for their relationship to society. It's a really difficult moment. Yes. It seems like all of culture discourages this. There's nothing to support this kind of task for women. And so it's not surprising that it's so difficult. Yes, you're exactly right. And it's also as if we see the weight of history with this. We can really see how it's always been, women haven't necessarily been able to be an active part of transforming humanity. It often costs them their lives. Olympe de Gouges, the woman who participated in the French Revolution in 1789, who was then guillotined because she dared to write a declaration on women's rights, also dared to ask for the right not to be married, the right to divorce. So historically, there's been a kind of exclusion from the social space. Yeah, and this at the moment of a, an important fight for freedom, I mean, it's shocking. It's the moment of the revolution. Exactly. For everyone, but not for women. That's exactly right. And yes, we see this in the power of cultures and civilizations these days, which call into question the right to abortion, for example, because here the goal is to control the bodies of women with regards to their role as a mother. This is what we were talking about earlier. It never ends. I think that young women, your students, ought to be wary of the constraints that are now being imposed upon them once again. But it's not just the West. We clearly see everywhere, too, in other cultures, how women are subjected to domesticity and excluded from the social sphere. We're privileged in this way where we live, even if we aren't always exempt from this kind of regression. But to go back to the clinic, it's as if women struggle to free themselves from this unspoken burden that is weighing them down, that weighs on their freedom, their creative freedom to create, which, it must be said, comes with consequences regarding the positions they take. That's a part of it. There's freedom, but there's the responsibility that comes with it. I was referring to an extraordinary book written by a woman from Saudi Arabia, which tells the story of her escape from Saudi Arabia, uh, Rana Ahmed. And the book is called Here Women Don't Dream. But it's an extraordinary example of an escape as well. Not only does she escape the culture by leaving Saudi Arabia, she escapes Islam, she escapes religion, she becomes an atheist. But all of that comes with a risk. There are obviously consequences for her. She has to leave her country, find somewhere else to stay, somewhere she can't even mention for fear of being captured again. So it's an extreme example. But what I mean is that the assumption of a, de a desiring position comes with responsibility for the consequences. I think you've elaborated these stakes really well in some of your articles that in different contexts, the one you just provided, discuss feminine jouissance in the body. You spoke about the mystic Teresa of Avila in Spain and Jean des Anges in France, the possessed woman that Michel de Certeau also studied. So I was wondering if we could talk about the distinction between what's happening with the jouissance in bodies, in the bodies of each of these women to illustrate what we're talking about. Yes, I wanted to compare the two, Jean des Anges, supposedly possessed by the devil, and Teresa of Avila, the mystic. What I was interested in was the passage of this relation to the thing, the thing being some form, a kind of mass of the drives free energy that escapes cultural control. In the case of Jean des Anges, the thing remains trapped in the body because it reaches a dead end where it can't find a mode of aesthetic expression. With Teresa of Avila, this thing, this free drive, 
transforms into a jouissance that she welcomes and that becomes the source, the creative energy that nurtures in her a work that she brings to humanity. To return to Jean des Anges, it's as if this free drive had remained a non-transformed thing that became a, a violence, a violence that came back to haunt her and even ravaged her body, a violence she tries endlessly to attribute to another who could be made responsible for it, whether it be the devil who possesses her or the priest who seduced her and who she later accuses, leading to his execution and condemnation. So there's another responsible for this thing in her, for that which that ravages her and who is responsible for saving her from this. In other words, what traverses her body and drives her mad is never considered to be her own, to be something that she is responsible for. Therefore, there's no other path for it than the symptom and the passage to the act. In that sense, we could say from today's point of view that she never escapes seduction. She never escaped a relation to another in which she is the object from which she expects recognition and love, an other that she blames for not bringing her when she expects from it. To return to Jean des Anges, it's as if this free drive had remained a non-transformed thing that became a violence, a violence that came back to haunt her and even ravaged her body, a violence she tries endlessly to attribute to another who could be made responsible for it, whether it be the devil who possesses her or the priest who seduced her and who she later accuses, leading to his execution and his condemnation. So there's another responsible for this thing in her that ravages her, who is responsible for saving her from this. In other words, what traverses her body and drives her mad is never considered to be her own, to be something she is responsible for. Therefore, there's no other path for it than the symptom and the passage to the act. In that sense, we could say from today's point of view that she never escapes seduction. She never escaped a relation to another in which she is the object um, and from whom she ex expects recognition and love and others she blames for not bringing her what she expects. She resides within a cultural frame that considers this thing inside of her as something bad that must be eradicated. The position of Jean des Anges within this relationship to the thing inside of her ravages her and becomes a violence turned against her because she continues to call upon another to take responsibility for it. Today, we would call someone in this position a borderline. Yeah, I was going to ask you um, where we might see that today. The borderline doesn't escape seduction, meaning that she never finds a way to make herself a desirable or lovable object for the other. And she still expects and searches for this love from the other, but it's never there. It's never, as we say in French, it's a voie de garage, a driveway, a road to nowhere in which the other is forever useless. And meanwhile, with Teresa of Avila, as with all mystics, she is outside the frame of culture and civilization. Mystics are outside of culture, beyond repair from the perspective of the official frame of religion and religious authorities. St. John of the Cross, for example, is imprisoned. In the end, he saves himself. Teresa of Avila is actually outside the culture, and what interests me with her when we read her autobiography is this relationship to the other. Because here, the positioning of the other is completely different than how it is with the possessed woman. It's another that she calls God, and who is, at first I said absent, but it's not really absent. It's really the place of an address, meaning a place of address in her that triggers an experience in her of unprecedented expression. She prays, she writes, in total freedom of expression, refusing the opinions of spiritual directors who say it's diabolical, that she should refuse this until she meets John of the Cross, who says to her, no, no, you must let it be. You must let yourself experience that. So she gives in to this jouissance. She calls both spiritual and corporeal. 
and thus it's really a jouissance in the body. In short, the other is not responsible for what inhabits her. And she takes a path in which she's not only taking the responsibility for this desire in her, but in taking this responsibility, making it the source for creating a work in society. She establishes convents all across Spain with a framework she feels was missing in her own mystical experience and her trajectory. And so the other is not responsible for what traverses her. She welcomes what traverses her to the point where it becomes a source of energy with which she can create something unprecedented, something that she gives to humanity. It is she who officially does the reform of the Carmelite order. It's interesting to note, as you do, that she's no longer an adolescent in the biological sense of the word. Isn't she 41 years old when she starts to experience this transformation you're talking about? Is this a similar kind of transformation we could see in an analytic uh, cure with the traversal of castration? Yes, it's interesting how we would look at it today. In terms of today's treatment, the first step would be a way out of seduction. Teresa of Avila calls this escaping the imprisonment of her self-image, to use her terms. The imprisonment of her self-image, something like this. So the first step, a way out of seduction. The second step is precisely what we define as the traversal of symbolic castration. And this is what we see in her refusal and emancipation of the limits imposed on her by religious and cultural authorities of her time. We can't forget that when she writes, she risks being read by spiritual directors who could have her burned because of it. This is the time of the Inquisition. So she's really taking a risk by going beyond the limits defined by religious and cultural authorities of the era. This traversal of symbolic castration indeed removes the censoring of the feminine, of this free drive, of the desire to create that is within her. And as soon as these cultural limits are lifted, there is the third step to continue with how these parallels with treatment today. The third step is when she assumes responsibility for this by making something of it, by articulating it for the sake of humanity. She creates something and articulates it for future human beings. So this third step to return to our current times, this free energy of the drive inside of us, organized through our experiences by the mental representations that have marked us as subjects, once liberated from cultural constraints, give the subject complete responsibility. So in treatment, the traversal of symbolic castration is the moment when the subject is completely responsible for what happens to them. They can no longer put the responsibility on someone else. They can no longer count on the limits the culture has given them because the traversal of symbolic castration has placed them beyond these limits. So in this final part of the treatment, the subject is completely responsible for this drive of desire. And this is when the future of the analyzant's desire depends on their ethics. Will the analyzant go back to being how they were before, which happens in some cases? Will they run away from the consequences they would have had to face? Or will they find a way to articulate what's at work in them as a subject to humanity or to the future? Will they find a way to create something for humanity? It's an extremely important question because once we confront this free drive of desire, this non-limit of what the human can create, well, this could be for the better or for the worse. In the times in which we live, we see that it can really be for the worse. Putin is following a fantasy which he's ready, in which he's ready to create anything. And that's just an example. I mean, this is what we're currently living through. Only humans have been able to create the worst horrors. An animal has never been able to come up with ways of torturing like humans have. So when we say for better or for worse, it's not theory. This free drive, this quest in us that we used to say goes well beyond the logic of life. 
goes beyond the logic of pleasure, is exactly what we are currently living. In fact, all centuries, in their own ways, have seen these for worse horrors too. So this ethical question at the end of analysis is fundamental. And that's what's so subversive about psychoanalysis. It's interested in this irreducible dimension of the human that resists and insists that will never be able to be controlled by culture and civilization, by any belief. Hence, this question about the ethical and the aesthetic that Willie Apollon emphasizes. What is the subject going to do with this inevitable freedom while they're living with other subjects who also have an inevitable freedom? That's the ethical part. Our future cannot be considered apart from the ethical sentiment in all people that ultimately decides how what the subject brings contributes to humanity. What Putin is doing makes us think about what is important for humanity. What he's doing is destroying the human. So these two directions are extremely important as soon as the psychoanalytic practice becomes ethical and not. We don't practice psychoanalysis to understand what happens to us or to understand or retell our stories or find out why we are the way that we are the reasons we're unhappy with this or that. That's not psychoanalysis. I think that's surprising. Yes. We practice psychoanalysis first to liberate what is hindering our desire, the unconscious quest to liberate those restrictions. But then once liberated from these restrictions, the subject alone is responsible for what they're going to do with that freedom. And that's when psychoanalysis becomes an ethical practice and not a theory or a way of, um, we used to have a joke illustrating this, saying that a man beats his wife, so he gets an analysis, and then he understands why he beats his wife. So now he continues to beat his wife, but he knows why. That's (laughs) not psychoanalysis. (laughs) That's a good example. But that's just it. When we work Me, I I work a little with people with neurosis, but I'm working full time with people with psychosis. And this is an extremely important question for that. They aren't there to understand or fix their delusion or to understand what has happened to them. They are there to change things in their lives. So this question of analysis as an ethical practice is once again related to, uh, in, in other words, when we stop concerning ourselves with reinforcing the self and fixing its place within culture and beliefs, When we get out of that, realizing that is not psychoanalysis, we see that what we're doing in psychoanalysis is actually lifting all restrictions, whether cultural, civilizational, or through some kind of relation to the other, and thereby ensuring the fundamental freedom of the subject and inalienable freedom. And so only the subject can see and know what they can do with the unconscious quest that inhabits them be it building a laboratory in space, anything. Two weeks ago, I saw an image of a musician in Ukraine. He was in a place where all the buildings around him were destroyed. He was alone in the middle of the place playing his cello. This kind of thing is something only humans do to create something so beautiful, despite all the horror that surrounds us. The image was magnificent, uh, because of just that. It was an example of the best and the worst in a single shot. Yeah, absolutely. That makes me think about the fact that I'm I'm going to record an episode with someone from Puerto Rico who often goes to the Quebec clinical seminars and school days, and who began this effort to try to bring something from psychoanalysis to people affected by Hurricane Maria a few years ago. So to try to listen to the subject beyond the victim that was certainly affected by this disaster. It's a group, actually. It's all women, which is also interesting to me. They have moved into an extremely marginalized neighborhood where everything has been destroyed to try to create something there. We'll see what that is later on in in that episode. But anyway, that seems to me like an aesthetic act as well, to try to transform a place that has been destroyed 
also ruins here. I think that was the link for me with what you said. Anyway, I really liked that you offered a definition of psychoanalysis by what it is not. Sometimes we need to think about it this way, because often when we talk about therapy, we may think that there is an advantage because it takes a shorter time than psychoanalysis, for example, but it's always centered on the self and succeeding within civilization and culture. Yes, absolutely. I think this is what distinguishes psychoanalysis from psychotherapy. Psychoanalysis is not psychotherapy. Psychotherapy is always going to, in in other words, people go to see a psychotherapist to fix what they identify as their self-esteem, for example, or something that's not working in their relationship to others or to their work. It's always inside of this frame. And I would say that what we were identifying earlier as an important step in treatment, you were asking about what psychoanalysis is. In this sense, it's really an experience. It's not about understanding or trying to understand things in a certain way. It's about an experience, and it's an experience of a space that is opened up for free speech, unreserved, without any restrictions, any obstacles. And that presumes that the analyst, too, has traversed castration, a removal of the censorship of the feminine, and an assumption of their own inner quest. Otherwise, they would not only be an obstacle, they they could only be an obstacle to the speech of the analyzant. So the psychoanalyst aims for precisely that which has never been said, that which has never been named, which has never been represented, spoken, uh, which has only been able to express itself through the act or the symptom. So we work with the symptom and the act precisely so that whatever is trying to express itself through the symptom can pass through speech can be transferred to speech. And as soon as the analyzant becomes conscious of this, they must assume responsibility for how it is transferred into speech, finding themselves in an ethical position with regard to this. So it's an experience that the analyzant undergoes, guided, of course, by the analyst who must have undergone treatment themselves, a certain experience of the traversal of castration in order to welcome the experience of the analyzant. But there's an ethical part here for the analyzant, for the analyst cannot take responsibility for the future of what the analyzant does with this free drive, this desire, this quest. And your question about psychotherapy makes me think about this, because generally in psychotherapy, the client expects or asks from for help from the other person to fix what is not working for them in their relation to culture in their relation to the other, their boss, their self-image, their self-esteem. So psychotherapy and psychoanalysis are really two completely different universes. Yes, it's very useful to see this distinction. Well, I think we've reached the end of our interview. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. I've really enjoyed these questions because they push us to go further and to try to be clear and get more directly to the point. Thank you so much for inviting me and hello to your students who listen to this. My pleasure. Yes, they will certainly listen to this. Goodbye. Bye.